welcome. I'll be very brief because you're here to listen to Daniel, not to me. Uh, I just want to say my name is Oriana Bandiera. I'm the director of Stickard. And uh, this is the Morishima Lecture, which we organize every year in memory of Micho Morishima. And Yoko is uh, very graciously attends all the lectures. And Micho knew that at his best, economics is a mix of philosophy and mathematics. Many of us are attracted by the questions of philosophy, but can't quite give up on maths because we're a bit nerdish. So many of us are attracted to economics because we want to learn a bit of both. Daniel, no. Daniel vertically integrated. He did a BSc in economics and a PhD in philosophy. So he's a true economist, and the defining moment of his career, I'm sure he will agree, is when he came here to the LSE to do a master's. One year, sandwiched between five years of math and five years of philosophy, at the EME uh, in economics. Now, uh, Daniel now is, as he would be, the Guido Calabresi Professor of Law at Yale, and correctly pronouncing the title of his chair is probably the most impressive thing that I can do tonight. And that's only because I'm Italian, not because I'm Italian. <laughs> uh, I think you'll be a lot more interested in hearing all that Daniel has to say about uh, very interesting trends in inequality, mobility, and ultimately the truth about meritocracy in the world today. Thank you. Thank you, Oriana, for the introduction. Um, thanks to Stickard for inviting me, especially since I'm not actually an economist, and so it's a double generosity of you to have me out and a great privilege and honor for me uh, to be here and to give the Morishima Lecture, not least because, as I read Professor Morishima's work, he was extremely interested in integrating economic thought into the other social sciences as well. I believe he had some formal training in sociology. He was interested in sociology and in politics as well as in economics. And I would like, hopefully, in what I say today, to integrate those disciplines. Uh, in addition, uh, Professor Morishima, at various points in his career, tried to bring certain ideas from Marx into contact with present-day material and intellectual circumstances. And one way to read what I'm going to say in a moment is to try to draw out some connections of that sort. And finally, and for me uh, most hopefully, one thing Professor Morishima said about the great classical political economists is he called them at one point extremely efficient users of technique by which he meant that they generated substantial results from relatively small quantities of formalisms. And uh, I aspire to do something similar today. Whether I achieve that or not is obviously for you to decide in about an hour. So let's get started. Um, I'm going to begin with a relatively familiar story by now which is that inequality has been rising throughout the rich nations of the world. This is the top 1% income share in the United States. I'm sure that almost all of you have seen some version of this figure. And the story is most distinctive in the United States 
and my data for most of the talk will come from the United States, but similar patterns of rising inequality have happened in other countries, including, as you can see in the purple line, the United Kingdom. And this story suggests a fairly straightforward and now widely dispersed lesson, which is it tells a story of very high concentration of income in the top 1% in the years leading up to the Great Depression, and then again of high concentration of income in the 1% in the years leading up to the Great Recession and the present, and then a period in between of relative economic equality, which has different names in different countries. In the United States, it's called the Great Compression, but is distinctive in that it's conceived of as a period of good economic policy and good economic practice, a period of shared prosperity. And in the United States, although there is partisanship at almost every turn, Republicans and Democrats both look at this period, the mid-century period, as an economic ideal to be recaptured in some way or other. Now, the details behind this development are less familiar, and I think cut against the basic story that I've just told. First of all, the nature of inequality has changed. The problem today associated with inequality is distinctively not poverty, but wealth. Now, poverty in the United States was not officially measured until 1962, when an economist named Molly Orshansky, working in the Department of Agriculture, constructed the first poverty threshold for the federal government and the first poverty index. So we don't have reliable data on U.S. American poverty levels from before the mid-60s. But the best historical estimates suggest that in the Great Depression, between half and possibly fully three-quarters of Americans were in poverty. At the end of the Second World War, between 40 and 50 percent of Americans were in poverty. And into the 1950s, a third of Americans were in poverty. And this was not relative poverty, this was absolute poverty, grinding absolute material deprivation. This state of affairs led various people to write books describing the condition of America's poor, particularly in contrast to the rising wealth of the society overall. Perhaps the most prominent was written by a man named Michael Harrington, who was, I'm proud to say, a graduate of my law school. Uh, he was a socialist his lifelong, including during the McCarthy periods, but staunchly anti-communist, democratic, never charmed by the Soviet Union. He was once described by Arthur Schlesinger as the only responsible radical in America. And he wrote a book called The Other America, in which he described in detail the circumstances of America's poor. He and other sociologists, most notably someone named Gabriel Kolko, described these conditions, and they were astonishing to contemporary eyes. A typical poor family in America in the 1950s consumed, let's say, one shared ice cream cone per week. The man got a new suit of clothes every year or two, the woman a new dress every two or three years, and that was the entirety of their non-necessities consumption. And that state of affairs affected, remember, possibly a third of the population. Dwight MacDonald wrote a famous review for the New Yorker of the other America, which reached President Kennedy's desk just before he was assassinated, impressed President Kennedy's domestic advisors, was then inherited by the Johnson administration, and became the trigger for the war on poverty. And the most important thing to understand about the war on poverty in the United States, as about the rise of social democracy programs and social welfare programs across Europe, is that it worked at reducing poverty. Now, poverty in the United States remains. It's deeper and broader than in other rich countries. 
It's a moral disgrace and a political scandal. And it's perfectly plausible to believe, I hope it's plausible to believe, because it's my own personal belief, that it's the most pressing economic issue of the age. But it is not the distinctive economic issue of the age. The war on poverty reduced poverty, and depending on how one measures it, poverty today is between a sixth and a half of its 1960 levels, even as the top 1%'s income share is twice its 1960 levels. That is to say, the period conceived of by both the left and the right in the United States as a period of shared prosperity had two to six times the poverty rate that this period, which is described as bad compared to it in the broad political scheme. What's happened is that the rich and the middle class have diverged in their incomes. The blue line is the ratio of the average share within the one, average income within the top 1% to the median income. Even as the red line shows, the median person and the poor, understood here as the average income of the bottom 20%, have been stable or even slightly converged. Gini coefficients show these two trends most dramatically. The black line is the conventional Gini coefficient for the entire American distribution. And what you see there is falling inequality during the first years of the Great Society, and then steadily and sometimes steeply rising inequality since then for an overall increase in inequality, which is quite significant. It shifts the United States from inequality of the type experienced by a country like France or in sometimes even Norway to inequality at the level experienced in India today. The red line is a Gini coefficient constructed for only the bottom 70% of the distribution. So imagine not redistributing the top 30% income, but just burning it and asking how much inequality is within the bottom 70%. And as you can see today, even after the Great Recession, inequality within the bottom 70% is significantly lower than it was at the middle of the Great Compression. The blue line shows the Gini coefficient for only the top 5% of the population, now by destroying the bottom 95%. And as you can see, it grows. It grows significantly more steeply than the Gini for the whole distribution. And it grows so steeply that in recent years, there has been more inequality within the richest 20th of the population than in the population as a whole. So the relatively falling gap between the poor and the middle class has served as a ballast to contain inequality in the distribution overall. That would have been unthinkable at mid-century, when the distinctive problem of the age was not wealth, but poverty. A second difference between then and now is also extremely important. Now, from time immemorial, the poor have worked long and hard. A typical British or American laborer in 1900 worked 60 hours a week. And in 1940, middle-class work hours were still long. Elites, by contrast, did not work industriously. As Torsten Veblen observed in his famous theory of the leisure class, elites dis despised industry. They characterized themselves as averse to industry. Now, elites were not idle. Instead, they engaged in another characteristic activity, which Veblen called exploit. Exploit was distinguished from industry in the following way. Industry was the effort of labor directed at reproducing the material conditions of existence. Exploit was labor directed at no functionally useful purpose. So for Veblen, chivalric rituals were instances of exploit. Elaborate courtly manners were instances of exploit. Knowledge of ancient languages, 
Veblen, who was an immigrant to the United States, also thought English spelling was an instance of exploit because his view was that only somebody who studied a lot could learn how to spell English. <laughs> what all of these activities have in common is that they're totally useless, but so time-consuming that nobody can master them if they also have to work industriously for a living. So there were a way by which elites could credibly signal that they didn't work industriously. The last type of exploit left in Veblen's view actually was the non-working wife, someone who did not have to work outside the household, which was a credible signal that the male bread earner's wage was still sufficient to maintain the social status of the family. Now, elites were not just typically engaged in exploit. They constituted themselves through exploit and through despising industry as what Veblen called a leisure class. That remained the case at mid-century America. The American Bar Association said in 1960 that there are probably 1,300 billable hours in the typical lawyer's work year. 1,300 billable hours involves working 30 to 35 hours a week. Bankers kept bankers' hours well into mid-century, which was the typical 10 to 3 business day. Managers of largest corporations in America were characterized by one outsider as the third-generation Yale man who had a three-martini lunch and spent his afternoons at the club. That has changed. The rich today work harder than they used to, and they increasingly work harder than the rest, including the middle class. This slide shows you the share of prime-age working men who usually work longer than 50 hours a week by wage quintile. As you can see, as recently as 1979, the highest fifth of wage earners were only about two-thirds as likely as the lowest fifth to work over 50 hours a week. But by 2006, that had reversed, and the highest fifth of wage earners are now twice as likely as the lowest fifth to work over 50 hours a week. This trend arises all the way across the income scale. The bottom 60% in the United States today work about 10 or 11 hours less per week on average. This is, again, full-time, non-self-employed, prime-age men. Even as each additionally elite income slice works harder than the other, and the top 1% today works four or five hours a week harder than it did at mid-century. Cumulatively, this effect is a shift of relative work hours per week away from the bottom 60% towards the top 1% of roughly speaking 16 hours a week, which is the equivalent of two standard work days based on a 40-hour week. This probably underestimates the effect because this is, as I said, prime age, non-self-employed, working men, and so it doesn't take into account changes in unemployment rates, which have been more skewed. Unemployment has become more skewed towards the middle class than it used to be, and critically changes in labor force participation rates, which have also become more skewed away from the elite than they used to be. Moreover, the rich work remuneratively. They owe increasing shares of their labor to income. This is especially true in the United States. It's very hard to get a handle on exactly what share of elite income comes from labor. It's hard for a variety of reasons. Some of them have to do with data. We have tax return data of fiscal income. We have some national accounts data. But the data is not as good as one would like it to be. But more importantly, it's conceptually difficult because the conceptual distinction between labor income and capital income is both a little unstable and depends on the moral frame in which one wants to deploy it. For the purposes of the arguments of the sort I want to make, the conceptual distinction is between income that has its roots in the earner's own effort and skill 
and income that has its roots elsewhere. So most characteristically inherited wealth. So for example, the person, the entrepreneur who founds a company and then after many years sells the company for a lot of money has labor income in my understanding, even though in some sense she may get her income most immediately from selling her founder shares. The hedge fund manager who manages assets that she does not own has labor income even though her income in the United States is taxed as capital gains as carried interest. Now, to try to get a handle on this, let's just look at core labor income to core capital income. These are ratios for the top 1%. As you can see, in 1913, the top 1% got only about a third of its core income from labor. Today, it gets three to four times as much of its core income from labor as it does from capital. So that's a relative scale factor of nine. For the top 1%, the levels are lower, but the expansion is even more dramatic. And as you can see here again, the relative importance of labor in super elite income, these are households that have an annual incomes in the millions of dollars a year, has grown dramatically. My best guess is that roughly speaking for the top 1%, at mid-century, roughly a third of its income came from labor, and today roughly three quarters of its income comes from labor. And for the top 1%, those numbers are roughly a sixth or a seventh, and perhaps as much as two-thirds today. But there are lots of assumptions built into those numbers, and I don't encourage you to take the absolute levels seriously, although the trends are serious. And it's important to understand that the result is almost certainly over half for both the top 1% and the top tenth of 1%. Now, this is an extraordinary state of affairs. This has never happened before in human history, in which the richest person out of every thousand dominantly works industriously for a living. Compare this state of affairs to Veblen's leisure class. It's also the case that the explosion of elite labor income accounts for the rise of the top 1% share of income overall. If you want a rough and ready way to see this, ask yourself about the much vaunted shift of income overall away from labor and towards capital. That's also a difficult number to get at, but here you have the range of serious estimates of this shift. The Bureau of Labor Statistics takes a dim view and says that roughly speaking there has been a 9% shift of income overall across the American economy, away from labor and in favor of capital. We know that the richest households by wealth, the richest 1% of households, own about a third of the wealth. That means that the richest 1% of households by income must own less than a third of the wealth. So this shift could explain an increase in the 1%'s income share of about 3%, which is a third times 9%. But the actual increase in the top 1%'s income share is probably about 12%, which means that three-quarters of that increase comes not from a shift of income away from labor and towards capital, but rather from a shift of income away from one kind of labor, middle-class labor, and in favor of another kind of labor, namely elite labor. So putting this together, these are ways in which now is not like then, and maybe also ways in which the mid-century was not better. Economic maldistribution today concerns not poverty but wealth, and the rich today are not rentier, or a leisure class in Veblen's sense, but rather a superordinate working class. So let's pause for a minute and talk about how this superordinate working class gets made. This is going to be a story of a massive and increasing investment in human capital through the mechanism of education in the children of very rich parents. 
I'll show you some spot estimates of periods of this typical investment. And at each point, what I'm going to try to do is to give you a sense for the gap between the typical investment made in the child of a very rich parent, a 1% household, roughly speaking, household income $475,000 US dollars a year or more, and a middle-class child. So it's the rich middle-class gap that I'm interested in, not so much the middle-class poor gap. Here you can see enrichment expenditures on children, just as a way of quick introduction. This actually is a rich poor gap, the top quintile versus the bottom quintile. And as you can see, from 1973 to the present, these are constant dollars. There's been very little change in the way in which middle, in this case, poor families spend money on their children's enrichment, even as there's been a massive increase in the expenditures that rich families make, so that a gap of about $2,500 per child per year has grown to a gap of about $7,500 per child per year. These are out-of-school expenditures on things like music lessons, some private tutors, athletic coaching, those sorts of things. The biggest difference, though, comes in schools. And here is where you really see the massive difference between the elite middle-class gap and the middle-class poor gap. A typical national public school student in America gets about $12,000 per year spent on her education. A student in a poor district gets $8,000. A student in a rich state might get $18,000. A student in a very, very rich town might get $27,000. And a student at one of the most elite private schools in the United States, where 80% of students come from households in the top 4% of the income distribution, will get over $75,000 a year spent on her education. Notice the gap between the elite, $75,000, and the median is more than $60,000, whereas the gap between the median and the poor is only about $4,000. So the rich middle class gap is 15 times as big as the middle class poor gap in investments in education through schooling in the United States today. Now, these differences produce a massive difference in, child, difference in childhood achievement. First of all, the size of the overall difference is enormous. This slide shows you the white-black achievement gap and the rich-poor achievement gap in the United States over time. The dashed blue line is the white-black gap. The red line is the rich-poor gap. And as you can see, by 2000, the rich-poor gap had grown larger than the white-black gap was in 1954. Now, 1954 was the year that Brown v. Board of Education was decided. What that means is that economic inequality today produces a, a greater difference in childhood educational achievement than apartheid did at mid-century. That's the size of the gap. The gap, moreover, is predominantly a rich middle class gap, not a middle class poor gap. This is a sociologist of education at Stanford named Sean Reardon who's put together some data on the 90-50 income achievement gap and the 50-10 income achievement gap. And as you can see, the rich have been leaving the middle class behind even as the middle class and the poor have been steady or slowly converged. This slide obviously bears a striking resemblance to the income ratios. That's not a causal story or causal proof, but it gives you a good sense for the kind of ways in which these things are moving in parallel. For SAT scores, which is the standardized test that determines what university Americans get into, the same result holds. Children whose parents earn more than $200,000 a year, again, this is about the top 4% of the income distribution, have 250-point higher SAT scores on average than median children. Median household income is between $40,000 and $60,000. Whereas median children have only 125 points higher SAT scores than children at or below the poverty threshold. 
So again, the gap between the rich and the middle class is twice as big as the gap between the middle class and the poor. This produces a skewed elite. Thomas Piketty and uh, Manuel Sayas and others have put together some data, college attendance by parental income rank. It's hard to find something more depressing than this, except this, which is the quality of college that parents go to in America by parental income rank. And at the very most elite colleges, the results are more striking. Still, at the 150 or so most competitive colleges in the United States, children from parents in the top quarter of the income distribution are overrepresented compared to the bottom quarter by roughly 14 to 1. That's not so surprising. No society has ever welcomed the poor into its most elite institutions. But they're also overrepresented compared to children from the middle two quarters by about 6 to 1 in each case. That is to say, the elite are squeezing out not just the poor, but also the middle class. At the very most elite institutions, the effect is greater still. There are more students from the top 1% of the income distribution in the Ivy Plus schools. This is the Ivy Plus Chicago, Stanford, and Duke and MIT than from the bottom half. And at the very most elite schools within the Ivy Plus, Harvard, Princeton, Stanford, and Yale, there are significantly more students from the top 1% than from the bottom 60%. What we are seeing here is a massive intergenerational transfer of advantage using a technology that has never before been deployed in human society. Traditionally, the way in which elites passed their privilege, status, and wealth to the next generation was through bequests of physical or financial capital made to adult children on the death of the parents. The way today's meritocratic elite passes on its privilege and status and wealth is through investments in the human capital of young children while the parents are still living. It's a meritocratic inheritance. And to get you a sense of the scale of it, let's try to compare these. So imagine that when we're to take the difference between the resources devoted to training a typical child of a 1% household and a typical middle-class child, not a poor child, and that each year, instead of investing the money in education, that money were put into the S&P 500 to create a portfolio that could then be bequeathed to the children on the death of the parents in the traditional way. That would yield about $10 million per child. That's the scale of the transfer of privilege that now happens in the United States through the mechanism of human capital accumulation. Why do the parents do this? The parents do this for reasons that several people in the audience here are more expert in than I am, but effectively because the labor market has been transformed. And a labor market that once focused on the middle of the distribution, providing middle-class wages for mid-skilled jobs, has instead become polarized into one that contains many gloomy jobs at the bottom and a few glossy jobs at the top. If you want an example of how this works, let's look at finance, and let's just illustrate this with home mortgage finance, because that's a way to see this very crisply and cleanly. So home mortgage finance shuttles assets from savers to borrowers in order for borrowers to be able to live in houses that they will pay for out of their future wages. At mid-century, the core production worker in home mortgage finance was someone called the loan officer. The loan officer was a mid-skilled middle-class worker in the American economy. He typically had a college degree from a local or regional, not from a national university. He received a middle-class wage. He had substantial autonomy over the loans that he made. 
and he was charged to exercise his discretion in order to ensure that individual loans were providently made. He'd assess borrowers, incomes, properties to decide whether the loans were a good idea or not, and he was promoted and paid based on whether the loans that he originated were in fact repaid. Today, if you meet a loan officer in the United States, this is not a mid-skilled middle-class worker. This is a form filler in her who's almost totally de-skilled. In fact, in litigation against uh, one of the big mortgage companies following the financial crisis, in discovery, evidence came out that these companies had hired people en masse who had been previously rejected from menial jobs to work as loan officers. And they're basically form filler inners. They're interfaces between the borrower and the company's computer systems. And now there's also, though, a set of super-skilled workers who take the loans that were made without discretion or much concern for whether they were providently made and securitize them, hedging out loan-specific risk to create derivatives which can then be marketed and traded by banks that don't hold the loans that they originate. And those are super-skilled, very highly paid workers. And the super-skilled workers make the unskilled loan originators possible because they can hedge out when this system works, which is not always, as we all know, but they can hedge out the errors made at origination. Finance as a whole resembles this. The red and the blue lines show you the GDP share and the employment share for finance in the United States from the middle of the last century to the financial crisis. And what you can see is that from 1950, roughly, to sometime in the mid-70s, employment share and GDP share grew together. In other words, finance grew by adding more workers who were producing on the same model that the previous generation of workers had produced on. Then, starting around the late 1970s, GDP share keeps going up, and employment share tops off and, in fact, starts dropping a little bit. So now finance is growing by producing more using fewer workers. Why is that? Well, individual finance workers, if you look at the purple line, that's relative education, and the green line is relative income. So what's happened is, until this shift happened, finance was not appreciably more educated or better paid than the rest of the non-farm U.S. private sector. But then what started happening is that super-educated finance workers came in, and finance shifted its model, as happened in home mortgage finance, away from a mass of mid-skilled workers to a small number of super-skilled workers who were massively more educated than the rest of the labor force and also massively better paid. And so you see the same phenomenon. This happens across the economy. This chart shows you, this is from a forthcoming paper, uh, not by me, uh, by Jamerich and, and Sue, which shows you uh, the share of employment, the, the percent change in employment shares by type of occupation. Routine work is mid-skilled work. Non-routine cognitive work is super-skilled work, and non-routine manual is unskilled work. And as you can see, in each of the three periods for the past 40 years or so, there's been a massive increase in the employment share occupied by elite workers and some increase in the employment share occupied by unskilled workers. And the bottom has dropped out of the mid-skilled market. So the reason why elites train their, parent, their children in this way is so that they can get the elite jobs and avoid the unelite jobs. And this is, unsurprisingly, a rational strategy. This slide shows you that only about 1.4% of Americans without a high school degree and only about 2.4% of Americans with a high school degree have lifetime earnings equal to the median professional school graduate. So about 1 in 50 Americans from the bottom two-thirds of the education distribution 
have lifetime earnings equal to the median American from the top 10th or 20th. And in fact, only about 17% of Americans with a BA only have lifetime earnings equal to the median professional school graduate. And elite professional school graduates have earnings much, much higher than this. So there is a massive segmentation of earnings by education, which renders the kinds of investments that rich parents make in their children's education rational. Now, that doesn't mean that the jobs on either side of this are good. The low-paying jobs are obviously not good. They're not very well paid. But they're also not good in other ways. They have few opportunities for discretion, for professional development. They have few opportunities for promotion. I was interviewing a, about a year and a half ago a guy who ran a bowling alley in a town called St. Clair Shores uh, in Michigan outside of Detroit, which I chose because uh, it is almost exactly average in the United States today for its median household income and has a low poverty rate, but it has no wealth. It also delivered a landslide for Kennedy in the 1960 election and a landslide for Trump in the most recent election. And this guy reported that at mid-century, the pin boys at the bowling alley that he owned, which are the people who reset the pins, would quit on their 18th birthday, whether or not they had a high school degree, take a bus into Detroit where they get a job at one of the big three automakers. It would be a unionized job. It would pay roughly $40,000 a year plus benefits in contemporary dollars. And if they worked hard and were good workers, they would be subjected to a lifetime of workplace training and might end up becoming tool and die makers who would then make close to $100,000 a year contemporary dollars, all without a high school degree. Today, U.S. American firms offer almost no workplace training at all. Manpower Associates, which is the temporary worker provision firm, invests more in workplace training than the S&P 500 combined. There's basically no workplace training left in the United States. There's also almost no discretion. That is to say, Amazon warehouse fulfillment workers, for example, are strapped with uh, belts that have GPS systems on them, which tell them exactly what path to work on, walk on in order to fill their boxes. And Amazon now has a patent on a wristband, which gives haptic feedback, which is sufficiently sensitive that it can tell Amazon if one of its workers scratches his head a little too often, and then buzz so that Amazon can instruct the worker not to do that. So these are workers that have been tailorized almost into robots. They're not paid very well. And at the same time, something else has happened that's absolutely critical. So there's an old story that technological innovation, when it relieved the middle class or earlier the working class of the need to work, would free up previously overworked people for leisure. Marx's son-in-law wrote a book in the 1880s called The Right to be Lazy. The IWW, a radical labor union in the United States, in 1910 had t-shirts printed out that said four-hour day, four-day week. Keynes famously hoped that by the 21st century, people would not be working very many hours anymore. And what all these people believed is that when the masses no longer had to toil industriously, they would acquire leisure in the sense that Veblen had described. That is to say, they would acquire the opportunity for dignified, socially respected, self-fulfilling activities of their choice. What actually has happened is that just as elite income has shifted from capital to labor, 
Social norms have shifted to make industry now the height of valor and leisure in the sense of idleness now degraded. So the Wall Street Journal puts out advertisements in New York on its newsstands saying, people who don't have time to read the Wall Street Journal, read the Wall Street Journal. When I ask my law students how many of them have ever sent an email at 2 in the morning in order to demonstrate to someone else how busy they are, most of them raise their hand, and then some guy goes, you know, there's an app for that. (laughs) If you meet a member of the global elite anywhere on the street whom you haven't seen in a while, you say, how are you doing? And the correct answer is, so busy. Now, what all of these people are signaling They're signaling that their labor is in greater supply than demand. Busyness has become the badge of honor. And leisure has become impossible. It's become transformed into idleness. And so the middle class and the working class, when they are in these gloomy jobs and don't have enough work hours anymore, have the social experience of degradation that extreme overwork used to impose on the laboring class. Now, the strongest version of this, actually, in the United States is tied to race, and it's an extraordinary inversion. At a time when industry was degraded, the way in which the American race order imposed subordination on non-Europeans was by forcing them into slavery. Today, when industry is elevated, the way in which the American race order imposes subordination on African Americans is through a prison industrial complex, which means that people who have been convicted and imprisoned cannot get work. So forced idleness is taking the place in the social economy of esteem of what forced labor used to play in, under the slave regime. And this is a brutal and destructive force in the American middle class. Case and Deaton have documented recently that middle class white Americans, particularly men, are experiencing increases in morbidity and decreases in life expectancy. And they're doing so in circumstances in which there's no war, there's no plague, their work hours are down, and their consumption is steady or up. Again, it has never before happened in human experience that life expectancy has fallen at a level that demographics can pick up for people who are not being killed in war or by disease or by overwork. Instead, what people are being killed by is various forms of direct or indirect self-harm, obesity, alcoholism, drug addiction, which are ways in which the indignity of enforced idleness is somatized by an American middle class that's being excluded from industry in a world in which busyness has become the badge of honor. Now, this is not so great for the elite either. First of all, elites have to yield enormously intense labor effort. And the flat, grinding effect of these hours should not be neglected. The banker's hours from 9 to 5 have been transformed in American finance to what American finance workers call the banker 9 to 5, which begins at 9 a.m. on one day and ends at 5 a.m. on the next day after having pulled an all-nighter. American law firms now, where the American Bar Association used to say there are 1,300 billable hours available, today law firms tell their associates, we have a billable minimum of 2,400 hours. I know lawyers who have billed 4,000 hours in a year at elite American firms. Elite American managers, who are no longer the third-generation Yale men with their martinis at the club, work all the time. I was talking to somebody who was high up in eBay the other day, and he reported that 
he was maybe one of the top 30 people in eBay. And the person above him had recently called a meeting for 1 a.m. on Saturday night to Sunday morning for 40 people. And it was not her last meeting of the day. Amazon tells its managers, when you hit the wall from overwork, the only thing to do is to climb the wall. So that effort is terrible for the elite that's in it. But there's also an existential component to this. Physical and financial capital frees those who own it by allowing them to deploy their interests wherever they want. But under current technological conditions, the only way to exploit human capital is to mix it with your own contemporaneous labor and constantly to cultivate it. And the constant cultivation is important. The generation of US Americans who are now finishing graduate school or professional school are the first generation to have lived their entire life through this system. And from the youngest age on, they have been trained and drilled and measured and poked and prodded in rhythms of strain and evaluation and effort and hopefully acceptance. And at each stage, they've had to shape themselves to please others. Preschools in New York City now admit 5 to 6% of their applicants for the most elite preschools. Stanford University admits 5% of its applicants. In 1994, the University of Chicago, which is an Ivy Plus school, admitted 70% of its applicants. Now, to spend your whole life trying to develop yourself in order that later on you can exploit yourself in order to please others and extract a return from your human capital is to succumb to a kind of very deep alienation, which is not conducive to your own flourishing. If we think back on Morishima's analysis, mathematical analysis of Marxism for the present technique, here we might say something like this. In a very classic Marxist sense, the logics of exploitation have moved up the class structure. The middle class has become the lumpenproletariat, surplus to economic requirements and ideologically prevented from forming a class consciousness by the meritocratic idea that the reason it's failing is that it can't measure up. Whereas exploitation and alienated labor have fallen to roost in the elite, which exploits and alienates itself and extracts the return from its own self-exploitation, which makes it not a proper object of political or moral sympathy, but existentially remains in a terrible, terrible position. So that's the system that meritocracy has produced. And what I want to do is spend the next maybe 20 minutes before we take some questions thinking about how to evaluate and criticize the system and how we might get out of it. First of all, it's important to understand that this type of inequality is almost perfectly constructed as if by an omniscient evil genius to resist the traditional arguments that built the social welfare state. So traditional arguments for redistribution emphasized humanitarian concern for the poor. That's what drove Kennedy and Johnson when they read Michael Harrington's The Other America. But today, poverty, while it remains a problem, is less of a problem and cannot motivate the kind of overwhelming political feeling that generated social democracy and the social welfare state at mid-century. These arguments also emphasized exploitation of labor by a leisure class. But today's elite are not rentiers. If they are, they're rentiers of their own human capital to themselves. When uh, President Obama, after the recent crash, suggested a millionaire's tax, an email went around the American big investment banks that said, we are Wall Street. 
said, we get to the office by 9, we don't leave till midnight. We don't get up to go to the bathroom when we're sitting on a trade. We skip lunch, we don't form a union, we eat what we kill. And the ideology of the elite is precisely that, that these are people who don't think of themselves as beholden to the rest of society, as having inherited or won some lucky lottery. These are people who think of themselves as self-made and deserving what they have produced for themselves. And they also think of redistribution that attacks their income as enslaving them, their personal talents and efforts, in the service of the collective. I can take 10% of the inherited Rontier's factory without attacking her person. But I can't take 10% of the elite worker's wages without attacking his person within this ideology. And this explains, incidentally, why taxes have become less progressive even as incomes have become less equal. Here you see cumulative real household income growth in the United States for the past 50 years or so. And this is average tax rates by income group. And as you can see with the colors, there is again a perfect correlation. Well, if this thing, hold on. The colors show a perfect correlation between those who have the greatest increase in their market incomes and those who have the greatest declines in their tax rates. And an interesting thing to see here also is that the greatest shift of the American tax burden has been from the top 1% to the next 9%. So those who are fully disempowered might be unable to influence policy. But the next 9% include doctors in general practice, journalists, engineers, government workers. These are people who have cultural capital and access to the labors of power. And if they agree to this shift in the tax burden, it must be, most likely must be, because they have imbibed the meritocratic idea that the extravagant incomes of the superordinate workers are deserved. What's happened in the United States, instead of securing rising middle-class consumption in the face of falling middle-class or stagnant middle-class wages, is that debt has filled the gap. The blue line shows per capita consumption, which has been steadily increasing. The green line shows per capita income, really the average income of the bottom 90% which was growing with consumption until about 1975 and then flattened out. And the red line shows per capita household debt, which has an opposite point of inflection to the income, which is to say that the American middle class financed its rising consumption through income through about 1975 and collectively has been financing its rising consumption through debt since then. So what are the ways to attack this system if the conventional arguments don't work? One important thing to see is what this does to social solidarity. There was this famous debate, at least famous in the United States, between Fitzgerald and Hemingway, in which Fitzgerald has a character in a story, say, the very rich are different from you and me, and Hemingway has a character answer, yeah, they have more money. And at mid-century, that was true. Rich people were middle-class people with modestly more money. Today, Fitzgerald is right. The rich lead comprehensively different lives, not just from the poor, but also from the middle class. They lead different lives at work. Workplaces are increasingly segregated by skill. Workplace culture is different. Unemployment risk is different by skill. They also have different domestic lives. Uh, in 1960, the share of couples, well, the share of couples with both partners with a college degree has increased eightfold since 1960. 
Today, only a quarter of the highest earning couples include even one partner without a college degree. Since only about a third of Americans have a college degree, this leaves very few people over to marry non-college educated people. Um, childbirth has become connected to education and income as never before. Uh, divorce rates grew for everybody in America through the 60s and 70s, then leveled off and declined a little bit for the educated and the rich, even as they kept going up for everybody else. Childbearing is astonishing. Over 50% of children born to women with high school educations are less, are born outside of marriage in the United States today. Almost no children born to college educated or professional school educated women are born outside of marriage. Geography is the same. College educated Americans were spread evenly across cities and evenly across cities and countryside in the United States. Today, college educated Americans are overwhelmingly concentrated in a very small number of zip codes and those zip codes are surrounded by other zip codes in which the concentration of college-educated Americans is only slightly less. Health is the same. These are just some data about various kinds of diseases and their prevalence for different classes of Americans. The Case and Deaton data show just how much health has surrounded this complex. Larkin has this line, the flesh surrounds us with its own decisions. And so if you want a comprehensive account of the effect of inequality, on a population, you look at what it does to their bodies, and this is a, an astonishing difference. You know, um, the gap between the life expectancy of a typical American in the top 1% and a median American has grown by an amount that exceeds the amount by which life expectancy would be increased if we cured all cancer. That gives you a sense of the effect of this. Also has all sorts of political consequences. It's become commonplace in the United States to observe that mass politics is dominated by money. Policy is almost totally unresponsive to the preferences of people at the 10th percentile and enormously responsive to the preferences of people at the 90th percentile. But that's actually the smallest distortion of democracy associated with this mechanism. A much bigger distortion comes from the politics of influence. That is to say, lobbying, and also the provision of professional services by lawyers and bankers to elites. In 1970, almost no Congress people became lobbyists. Today, roughly a third do. There's an obvious reason why. The gap between the salaries of public servants and the private sector workers they could become if they left has changed. As you can see, in 1960, a congressperson and a lobbyist earned the same. The Chief Justice of the United States earned less than a partner at a law firm, but something comparable. And the Fed share earned less than a bank CEO, but something comparable. Today, these ratios are 10 to 1, 20 to 1, 100 to 1. A clerk on the United States Supreme Court, the year after she leaves and signs at the law firm Jones Day, gets a signing bonus of $400,000 which is almost twice the annual salary of the Chief Justice of the United States. Now, critically, critically, these numbers here, the top numbers, are all below what it takes living in the cities that elites live in to provide the meritocratic inheritance to your children. So it doesn't take venal or corrupt elites to make this jump. It just takes elites who want to live in the same places as the people they went to college live in, and who want their children to go to the same schools that they and their friends' children go to, to make it almost inevitable that people will jump in this way. 
But that has produced a massive complex of what can only be called income and wealth defense. That is to say, a set of professionals deploying skills in order to make it impossible for the democratically elected government to get at the assets of even wealthier people. We don't think of that as politics. We think of that as the provision of professional services, as the rule of law. If the government wants to regulate me or tax me and I'm very, very wealthy, it has to do so in a way that accords with due process. But that's because we have the characteristic bourgeois view of property, which is that it's scale blind. The idea here is that the bus driver's home, the university professor's pension, and the hedge fund billionaire's billion dollar portfolio are all owned as private property in the same way. But the bus driver and the university professor are simply law takers. If the state changes the tax rate, they pay. But the hedge fund billionaire has substantial influence both over the laws that are passed to regulate her and over how she complies with the laws because she can hire an army of lobbyists and then an army of bankers and lawyers to meet the government trying to regulate her on an even or even a favorable pitch. And that makes it almost impossible for the democratic process to get at concentrated wealth. And the reason for that is, again, itself meritocracy. In 1900 in Britain, an elite public servant earned roughly 16 times the median wage. There was no way to get rich off labor except to work for the state. Today, the way to get rich off labor is to go work for people who are resisting the state on behalf of even richer people. This is, again, the first time in a long time in which the state and private concentrations of wealth and power are competing for the same resource. In medieval Europe, this happened also, and it was the fighting power of heavily armed knights. And this was a period when the center was weak relative to the periphery. Today, it's the managerial and analytic power of highly trained superordinate workers. And once again, the state is weak as compared to the private elites that can deploy this power to resist it using precisely the techniques, legal argument, financial structuring, due process, and the rule of law that we typically think characterize a good functioning democracy. This system also distorts political values. Elites become quietist. Here's a, a result of a striking uh, experiment that I and some co-authors did and published in Science a couple years ago. What we did here is we measured both the selfishness and the tendency to prefer efficiency over equality when the two convict, conflict among elites and middle-class Americans. And elites are both more selfish than middle-class Americans and much, much, much more efficiency-minded. And that's true even among elites who describe themselves as politically of the left. So Yale Law students self-describe as Democrats by a ratio of 10 to 1. But they're substantially more efficiency-minded and substantially less equality-minded than the average American population, which might vote Republican in a particular year. This also produces mass anger. The case in Deaton data showed the degree to which enforced idleness is turned inward by those subjected to it in destructive ways. We should not expect this form of frustration and cultural degradation to lash out any less fiercely than it turns in. And it lashes out in the form of populism and nativism. And there's a dark psychology here. 
disadvantage that's characterized as unjust can ennoble those who suffer it by calling on them to announce principles of justice which will both cure their disadvantage and be impartially justified and valuable. But when disadvantage characterizes itself as just and characterize those who don't win out as not measuring out and deserving to fail, there's no principled place for opposition to the disadvantage to go. And so it goes to less principled places. It goes specifically to nativism and populism and the inner logics of meritocracy directed in those ways. So the populism is characterized by a rejection of expertise, a rejection of institutions, a politics of personality. But as I just pointed out, it's institutions and expertise that enable the elite to resist the democratic regulation of wealth. It's institutions and expertise that exclude the middle class from privilege. Yale University does not admit very many middle class students. The elite law firms and banks of America enable the rich to resist taxation. And so when 60% of Republicans in Trump's America say that universities are bad for the country, there's a sense in which they're not wrong. At least they're encouraged to be dubious of expertise. This incidentally is why populists typically don't mind the super rich. The professional class can't understand this. The professional class has the view, why are the populists electing a billionaire? All he did is exploit middle class and working class people. And the, the answer is not that the middle and working class don't understand this. It's that they view the billionaire oligarch's income as outside of the system that's oppressing them. The system that's oppressing them is the system of professional credentialization, which is displacing their labor and denying their children access to opportunity. And the oligarch may be a scam artist or not, I spoke to a lot of Trump supporters in connection with writing this book. They all thought he was a scam artist. But they also thought, correctly, that his scam was not the thing that was keeping them down, and that he was resisting the thing that was keeping them down, and hated by those who were keeping them down. In addition, the nativist side of this is natural. So one way in which elite institutions launder the injustice that benefits their members is by insisting that they will be cosmopolitan and open across other non-class-based categories of identity politics. So when a place like Yale University says, we will admit you based on achievement, regardless of your race or your gender or your religion or your national origin, what it's saying is, partly we believe these principles because they're honorable principles, so there's a good faith part of this, but partly what it's saying is, look, we deserve our advantage. We're meritocrats. And the admission of groups that were traditionally excluded without reference to the categories that were the basis of their exclusion launders the exclusion of everybody else. And it invites everybody else to engage in an identity politics that has the same form as the identity politics that produced cosmopolitanism and diversity. So you start getting identity politics for white, Christian, straight men. And that's called nativism. So another way in which meritocratic inequality distorts things is by distorting the political values that we bring. Moreover, meritocratic inequality is not self-correcting. It's instead self-exacerbating. Now, this is a, a slightly more intricate argument, and here I'm borrowing a lot from the work of somebody who once taught here, who, as an aside, taught me here when I was here briefly, 
but not this material, Daron Asamoglu. And I, I just want to give an intuitive account of this mechanism, and I'm happy in questions to take up more details if people want. You might say, look, meritocracy works through two phenomena. One, the concentration of training in children of elite parents. And two, a labor market transformation that fetishizes skill and degrades mid-skilled labor. What's the relation? The conventional view is that skill fetishism causes training concentration. That's what I said earlier. The rich invest all this money in their kids because they want their kids to get the glossy jobs. But that the cause of skill fetishism is just outside the system. It's technical change. The rise of computers, the rise of robots, naturally displaces middle-class jobs and naturally complements super-skilled workers. Now, that can't be the whole story. People who invent things don't do so from the point of view of the universe. They do so as interested innovators who are trying to serve their own interests and contemporary needs. That means that they'll invent new technologies that interact productively with the other resources that a society has. An agrarian society that is located in the desert will invent drip irrigation. An agrarian society that is located in the floodplain will invent paddy field farming. In each case, the arc of innovation depends on the resources that the innovation will interact with. In modern society, the most valuable resource is the human capital of free workers. So it stands to reason that innovation will turn one way or another based on the distribution of skills in that workforce. And when skill training concentration produces super-skilled workers and new norms surrounding superordinate labor make busyness the badge of honor and make these workers willing to work in ways that previous elites would have viewed as degraded, innovators will produce technologies that complement those skills and that work effort. And so what we're seeing is that training concentration causes the skill fetish. Now, we can trace this out in micro-histories of particular industries. Let me say something very brief about finance and then move on unless people are interested in, uh, in this question in the question and answer session. So the basic models, the basic ideas, the capital asset pricing model, Black-Scholes theory, that underwrite contemporary finance were all known by the early 1970s. The underlying mathematics behind them was known a few years after Pascal died. But it wasn't until the 80s and 90s that those technologies were applied in a practical way to make super-skilled, super-compensated finance workers possible. So what happened in between? Well, here's what happened in the United States. The US won the space race in 1969. In the early 70s, it entered into a detente with the Soviet Union, ending the arms race. From the end of the Second World War until about 1970, National security concerns caused the American government to invest massively in training physicists and engineers in order to build up its military-industrial establishment. Those two events around 1970 caused a massive decline in physics departments and engineering departments across the country, creating an army of physicists and engineers who had elaborate training and no place to go. Some of them tried to go into oil and chemical companies, which could not absorb them all, and they moved to finance. And so these ideas, which had been around and available for some time, were suddenly deployed to create modern finance just at the moment a meritocratic financial workforce appeared to use them. I can tell a similar story about management. I can tell a similar story about law. I can even tell a similar story about retail. Now, where does this leave things? 
The word meritocracy is new in the English language. It's so new that we know when it was invented. It was invented by an Englishman, Michael Young, who wrote The Rise of the Meritocracy. Now, the reason he had to invent a word is that government by the most virtuous was already taken and had become degraded. It was called aristocracy. And so he switched out the Greek root for virtue in favor of the Latin root for earn and created the word meritocracy in English. The associations between meritocracy and aristocracy are exactly as close as that etymology suggests. If you had asked a member of the Ancien Regime, an aristocrat, why he, and it would have been a he, was so disproportionately entitled to wealth and power and status, he would have said, it's because I have the most virtue. And within the frame of the Ancien Regime, he would have been right. In a world in which there was low growth and trade was zero sum, there was not much advantage to commerce, and having the right relationship to the land was essential. And aristocratic families had the right relationship to the land, in particular to manage it for the long term. In a world in which political organizations were scaling up from the family to the nation state, aristocratic clans produced the bridge between the household unit and the state as a source of political charisma. Even courtly manners stood in for bureaucratic expertise in a world in which government was gradually professionalizing and rationalizing itself. The reason the Ancien Regime fell in the face of the bourgeois revolutions was not simply, and this is pure speculation, but I believe it to my core, not, own, not even predominantly, because people recognized that who was born an aristocrat was a matter of chance or a birthright lottery. Rather, it was that people saw that the virtues that the ancien aristocrats claimed had become ridiculous, were not virtues at all, were more like vices. The argument I've just made shows that the virtues that the meritocrats claim are themselves unstable normatively. It's not just that meritocracy undermines equality of opportunity. Of course it does. It's also that the virtues themselves are made by this kind of an argument to appear to be ridiculous or at best vices. A fable illustrates this. Imagine a society that had warriors and farmers. The farmers grew food. The warriors kept the society safe. And for a long time, there was peace between the societies and its neighbors. And both sides did tolerably well. Then one day, one of, the far, one of the warriors attacked a neighboring state. Border skirmishes became endemic, transformed into warfare. The society hit a war footing. And at the war footing, this society was utterly dependent on the warriors for its personal security and safety. The warriors start saying, we should get all of the wealth, status, and power because we're the most productive members of the society, to which the farmers could answer, you wouldn't be that if you hadn't started the war. And the meritocrats today are in exactly the same position. They started the war, not because they're vicious or venal, but because responding to incentives in the way in which people do, they started out a snowball mechanism of training concentration, fetish for skill, more training, more fetish for skill, which doesn't actually benefit the society as a whole and makes them extremely wealthy. And what they call merit isn't actually a virtue at all. It's just a way of laundering 
a fundamentally unjustified and offensive distribution of advantage. So what might we do? Well, deep forces drive this forward. This is not a small problem. Um, I think this is a transformation of our economic and social order on the same scale as industrialization. And if a well-meaning king and prime minister in England had been told in 1800 that by 1860 the Industrial Revolution would have reduced the life expectancy of a child born in Manchester to a level so low that it had not seen since the Black Death, which is what actually happened. It's not clear they could have done anything about it. At the same time, there are things we can do. The snowball mechanism, the endogeneity of technological innovation, suggests that none of this is inevitable. It's not that technology just has to favor elite workers, that the robots are going to take everybody else's jobs, and then the AI is going to take the few remaining jobs left, and only the super skilled are going to remain employable. Technology could shift so that it becomes a complement for mid-skilled labor, and even possibly a substitute for certain kinds of super-skilled labor. So it's not inevitable. There are policies that we can deploy to diffuse education, to promote investment in technologies that complement mid-skilled labor. And if we do that, we can turn the mechanism in reverse. And all of the engines of feedback loops that have been driving the inequality that we see forward can start to ameliorate it. The real problem is not technocratic. It's political. It's trying to find the will. Even responsible elites are quietest about inequality, less so than they were before. But even today, they're quietest about meritocracy as the root of the problem. Most elites today think the problem is that our institutions are not living up to meritocracy, that they're engaging in various forms of corruptions, which is real. There's rent-seeking, bribes are paid to get rich kids into universities. But those are margins on the outer edge of a massive regime which is dominated by the kinds of meritocratic inequality that I'm describing, which elites captivated by meritocracy's charisma are unable to see. It doesn't help that we're trained to think of redistribution as a zero-sum game. It's Arthur, Arthur Oaken's leaky buckets. The idea is that to benefit everybody outside the elite, we would have to take a cut out of the elite. And because wealth and income are now so concentrated, that cut would have to be concentrated. And that seems like a cost that elites will be unwilling to bear. And this makes high-end inequality difficult to ameliorate. And nativists and populists fill the breach. But the story I'm telling also has grounds for hope. The question is, where do we marshal the political will? And if I am right that Marx's diagnosis of exploited and alienated labor has moved up the class system, this is a structure that doesn't benefit even those who seem to be doing well. Meritocracy has become, as I say, a gilded cage that excludes everybody else and ensnares those who are inside it. And I can tell you certainly that a more equal world will make everyone better off. It would restore the elite's freedom, even as it gave dignity and meaningful income to everyone else. And that young people, my students in particular, are starting to see this. They see it urgently. I don't know what life is like at the LSE among students. Yale Law students are totally different today from what they were 10 years ago. 10 years ago, they were eager, pleased with themselves, delighted to be inheriting the earth. And today, 
they are deeply unsettled, unhappy with the position they've been forced into. They're inarticulate and uncertain about how to get out of it, but they know that they don't want to continue to run the gauntlet that they've just run. Now, the last time there was this kind of unrest among young people, uh, the people at this university made this poster. Same bosses, same fight. And the idea is that students and workers are in this together. That was not true when this poster was made in 68. In 68, the students were almost certainly the children of Rentier, and they could still expect a life of dignified leisure. And the workers were mostly exploited by capital, not by superordinate workers. But it is true today. It is true today that this system does not benefit elite workers, and it does not benefit the middle class. And so to update an old slogan, the workers of the world, working in middle class but also super skilled, should unite. They have nothing to lose but their chains and a whole world to win. Thank you. Thank you so much for a very inspiring lecture. I'm sure there are lots of questions. I'll take them in groups of three. Could you please introduce yourself before asking the question and keep it very short? Thank you. Hi, I'm a student here at the LSE. Uh, could you say something about how meritocracy relates to a country's situation uh, econo in the economic cycle? Uh, so you've used mostly examples from America, but I'm interested how it applies to other countries. Uh, thank you. I'm also a, stu a student here, and I would like to ask you what um, what do you think about the role of a uh, system of scholarships to combat this, and um, also the role that extracurriculars play in this? The, I'm sorry, the role that what? Of extracurricular activities, and how they relate to scholarships that only cover um, the curricular activities and if you are in favor of developing this system or uh, changing um, the uh, school system altogether. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Ahmad. I'm at UCL, a PhD student. Um, can you please expand on what you mean by diffusion of education and how we combat this? Thank you. Sure. Uh, so, so let me say something uh, brief to these three because I think there were other hands also. Uh, this is a story that at the moment is certainly confined to the rich nations of the world. It is most distinctively in play in the United States. It's also in play, I believe, in the United Kingdom and in Korea, South Korea also. Um, it's complicatedly in play, I think, in France, but it's a very different story there. The comparative question to ask, I think, is whether the United States is an outlier or a forerunner, and whether other places are going to get this disease. Um, that's especially pressing because the explanation that I've given for rising inequality, which sounds in meritocracy and human capital, is in some ways at odds with the more conventional explanation, at least the explanation that has become more conventional up to now, associated with Piketty and others, which is that rising inequality sounds in rent-seeking and concentrations of physical and financial capital and the returning dominance of capital over labor. Now, it's important to say 
These are competitors only at the margin. Both processes can be happening at once. And it's a question which process will be more dominant going forward. Um, my own view is that the process I'm describing likely will expand, and that the United States is a, a forerunner, not an outlier. And that has to do with what I regard as the enormous ideological power of meritocracy and the associated fragility of rentier capital wealth of the sort that Piketty and others describe, which I think one obviously can be destroyed by wars and other things, but also is vulnerable to political expropriation and is vulnerable to dissipation in other ways. 10% um, of the world's billionaires, for example, have now committed to giving away the bulk of their estates on their death. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg gave away 99% of his Facebook fortune on his deathbed. No, uh, he, you know, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> he announced that he would do it on his deathbed at the moment of the birth of his daughter. And here's what's striking, is he did it in a love letter to his daughter, in which he said, I am doing this for you. Now, for an old aristocrat, to give away his estate would have been to disinherit his daughter. Where Zuckerberg thinks of it as empowering his daughter because of the allure of meritocracy. He will give her the meritocratic inheritance. She'll do great. And he thinks, correctly maybe, she'll be better off than if she became Paris Hilton and had inherited all of the capital. So I think it's coming elsewhere and it's partly already arrived, but obviously the future is uncertain. The other two questions are closely related to each other. Um, in a world in which elite universities are overwhelmingly populated by very rich students, scholarships tend to go to rich people. Okay? Um, in the United States, at the most elite universities, the rich students there pay on average only 20 cents on every dollar it costs to educate them. Whereas at the least competitive, least elite universities, the much less rich students pay on average about 80 cents of every dollar it costs to educate them. You can go to Princeton University now on a full scholarship and have a household income of $200,000 a year, which puts you in the top 4%. So even need-based scholarship in this system overwhelmingly goes to very, very rich people. And the reason why is that the education these universities provide is so resource intensive that even rich families can't afford it. If you have a household income of $200,000 a year and live in New Jersey, which is a high-tax state, your after-tax household income may be $110,000 a year, $120,000 a year. Princeton University costs over $60,000 a year. If you have three children, you can't afford that out of your income. So of course you need a need-based scholarship. But it's absurd to say that money given to you promotes equality. Right? So, so what, what's to be done? Uh, the, I think what's to be done is massively to open up access to elite universities. Um, Harvard, Yale, the rest of the Ivy League today spend twice as much per student per year as they did in 2000. Consider that for a minute. Harvard and Yale were gold-plated in 2000, but today they spend twice as much per year. And so the first thing to do is to force these universities massively to expand their enrollments. There's no reason they can't train twice or three times as many students 
There's an easy lever to do this, which is that right now they're all organized as tax-exempt charities. But it's odd to treat as a charity an organization whose members are all its own graduates. And if not its own graduates, the graduates of other elite universities. It's more like a club. And, and the, the tax laws should be changed to require these universities and also elite private schools and also in various other mechanisms, elite public schools in very rich districts to admit large numbers of people from the outside. What that would do is it would, one, make these places, again, engines of opportunity, and two, it would dilute the education that they get. It would create a massively greater supply of well-educated labor, a smaller supply of super-educated labor, suppress elite wages, and change the direction of innovation more nearly to track mid-skilled work. One last thought about this before uh, we get another set of questions. If you take the 10 largest university endowments in the United States today and grow them for the next n years at the same rate at which they've grown for the last 30 years, and you take American household wealth and grow it at the same rate for which it's grown in the last 30 years, and you just extend that into the future, sometime inside meritocracy's second century, those 10 universities will own the entire United States. Now, that's not going to happen. And so the only relevant question for the management of these universities is whether the way in which it doesn't happen is consistent with their values and mission or inconsistent with their values and mission. And opening themselves up to educate a much broader elite is consistent with their values and mission. But being attacked by populists is not. And so they have good reason, although they don't know it yet, to adopt the kinds of policies I'm describing. We only have time for three, so it's going to be difficult. Yeah? Hi. Hi. Thanks for an interesting, very interesting lecture. Um, I'm Joseph Stevens. I work for the Treasury. Um, what I found really interesting about your lecture um, is this idea of meritocracy and not so much the fact that, or the idea that meritocracy has been gained by the elite, but the idea that meritocracy itself um, enforces right. inequality. So all the elite, if you like, the traditional elite who had lots of money have done is they've laundered their money through um, elite universities, etc., through their children um, to increase their capital mm -hmm. and their intellectual capital, etc. My challenge to you, I suppose, would be, as the elites have done this, um, is it really a case um, that the solution is to open it up again, open up universities to those with less money, or is it really that uh, things you've touched on, the fact that inequality has been moved on by technology, by corporations, which can now challenge the power of governments, multinational corporations, mm -hmm. isn't that the real problem, rather than the fact that rich people are now laundering their money through elite universities and their children, isn't it really a case that because the middle class has been winnowed out so much, um, that really the problem is technology um, and other forms of inequality? Thank you. Gentleman here with a blue sweater. If you keep it short, we leave time for another one. Hi, uh, you, you talked about uh, populism, but you spoke about one interpretation of uh, populism. But don't you? Sorry, of what? 
about one in interpretation of uh, populism. Don't you think that populism is also a way out of this meritocracy trap? For example, 80% uh, of Americans are for free college. 65% are for uh, universal healthcare. So I understand mm. that you talk about populism as it is portrayed in the media, but it can be also a way out of this trap. Hard work you have explained is amount of hours spent in the workplace. That is totally wrong. A nurse who spends 12 hours at work saving several months, <coughs> running yeah. around on the stress yeah. with very ill patients works extremely harder right. than yeah. a pen pusher yeah. sitting yeah. at the desk Good. Good. Uh, on his computer selling shares. So let me say something about the last, I'll go in reverse order this time. Um, that's a serious challenge. And I don't think that there is a morally non-neutral way to evaluate how hard work is. It is certainly true that let's take within one firm, Amazon executives don't work hard in the way in which Amazon warehouse workers work hard. Amazon, for example, was sued a few years ago in the United States because during a heat wave, it refused to open the end doors of its warehouses, and it got so hot in the warehouse that many of its workers fainted. And its executives were not suffering in that way. And uh, it would be both foolish and wrong to deny that difference. At the same time, elite labor has become much more surveilled than it ever was before. There's constant reciprocal evaluation in all elite workplaces in the United States today. It has become much more dependent on receiving favorable evaluations. So. Even at the very top, the odds that a U.S. CEO is fired within six weeks of an analyst's negative stock evaluation have doubled or tripled in the past 20 or 30 years. But that's because of distortion. They overvalue themselves. Well, it, it, there are lots of possible reasons why it's happening. But the experience of working under those kinds of surveillance and pressure is not the experience of a sinecure. It's not the same as physical labor. But it's not the experience of a sinecure. And if you look at sociologies of elite workplaces, including those produced, overwhelmingly produced, by um, demographers and sociologists whose principal moral and political commitments are left-wing and to the middle and working classes, they tell stories of degrading and miserable workplaces. Um, a recent account of Amazon says that among Amazon managers, there wasn't a single one who had not, on repeated occasions, cried at work. Now, maybe these are self-indulgent, fragile people. <coughs> Again, there is no morally neutral way to get at this. But the thing I do want to insist on, while acknowledging that not all kinds of hard work are equally hard or hard in the same way, is that elite work is not a sinecure any longer. It is something that is unpleasant, difficult, stressful, and degrading for those who do it. 
and explain some of the sentiments that they have towards their advantage. On the populism point, uh, this is partly a question of definitions. I don't equate populism with democracy. All right? um, democracy is, roughly speaking, as, as Robert Dahl said, the responsiveness of the government to the preferences of its citizens conceived as political equals. But democracy in that way amalgamates these preferences through institutions and processes and rules that secure the regularity of political participation, the respect for rights, and the continuation of the democratic process going forward. Populism, on the other hand, is, as I use the word, and I don't care who uses the word what way, but I'm picking out a phenomenon in which certain kinds of charismatic leaders claim that they, rather than the institutions of the state, rather than the democratic process, reflect the true will of the real people. And this has both its anti-elitist, its anti-institutionalist, and its nativist side built in. So the populist demagogue says, I don't care what the lawyers say or the politicians or the bureaucrats or the professors or the journalists. These are the enemies of the people. Only I know what the people really want. I don't even care what the voters say because that's all a fraud. I embody my people. And by the way, my people are only those who, roughly speaking, look like me. And that's not the kind of solution that I think would be helpful. On the point about uh, what the real ill is, look, it's both. It, there's no question that <coughs> concentrations of capital, including through business organizations that have the juridical structure of corporations, are able to resist regulation produce technological innovations that favor certain groups and make it very difficult to unwind inequality. One important question to ask is, why now they do this in that way? And the kind of answer I want to give is that it is true that that's what's going on and that that's one of the mechanisms through which the machine I'm describing produces distortions, but that the root cause is the machine I'm describing which is to say the innovations were bent to favor super elite workers because of meritocratic concentrations of education, first of all. Second of all, it's the existence of an army of super elite accountants, managers, lawyers, and bankers who make it possible for corporations to resist the state in this way. And finally, the political project of unwinding that kind of concentration of private power can succeed in a benevolent way, only by attacking the meritocratic ideology behind it at its root. The alternative is either failure, insofar as people continue to believe that meritocratic inequality is justified, or populist demagoguery. And neither of those seems to me, at least, to be an appealing way forward. So I don't deny the forces that you're describing. I just think they're not the root cause, and they can't be undone without attacking the root cause. Thank you so much. You said you're not an economist, but this is economics at its best. Thank you, everybody, for coming. And Thank you all very, very much for coming. Thank you.